0: Hey, I got a game today. I decided to start off this sermon with a game. But the thing is, I'm going to need three volunteers. Brave volunteers. Now, I know that kids are very likely to volunteer and adults are not. So I will call on you if no one does volunteer. Any volunteers? It's real easy. All right, Rob, come on up. Anybody else? Mike, come on up. And Katie, Katie, come on up. Okay, Rob, stand right here. You're going to look at the screen, actually. You're going to look at the screen. Now, this is a very easy game, Rob. All you have to do is you need to tell me what color is on the screen. What color is on okay. the screen? You ready? Yes, go. Yes, I'm ready. First one. White. Hold on. What color is that? Blue. Uh, what color is, is, is RED? On the writing? On the, on the, on the, on the writing there. Yellow. <laughs> Yellow? Yellow. Okay, good. Good job. Okay, let's go to the next one. Let's see if we can okay. get the next one. Now that's a, that's a that's what color? Can you see? Well, there's two colors. That's, actually. that's a tough color. Because you got the number color and you got
1: the... Just give me the, color. give me the word. The word okay. color.
0: Okay. Okay. looks like a light blue. Yeah, it's a blue. We're gonna call that a blue. Okay. okay. Good. Okay. Now, Rob. Now I want you uh, to go really fast. Okay. Real I'm gonna fast. give you 18 colors. Boom. All right. Kay. Ready? Go. Yeah. The color. Uh, we got uh, green, red, white, yellow, blue, red, green, green. Red, white, yellow, blue, red, white, yellow, red. Wow. Very nice. All right. Katie, you got it. 100%. All right, Katie. All the colors. Yellow, blue, green, red, white, yellow, blue, red, green, green, red, red, white, yellow, blue, red, white, yellow, red. All right. You got it. Very nice. And Mike see if you can do it mike yellow blue green red white yellow oh white. oh wait no no you got it i'm sorry on my mistake Red, green green red white yellow blue red white yellow red wow it was too easy it was too easy congratulations you guys can sit down you guys can sit down hey was that difficult as you're walking back to your seats Can anybody else not do it? I mean, is there anybody sitting out there that that, I cannot do this? Anybody would admit that they cannot do this? Dan Rob, you want to give it a shot, Dan? Oh, who wants to see Dan try? Yeah, come on, Dan. One more try. Dan doesn't think he can do it. He has no confidence in himself. Okay, Dan. Now, again, the color, not the word, the color. I'm colorblind. You're colorblind? Is that why? Yeah. (laughs) All right, forget it. I'm sorry. (laughs) Well, that worked out great. You could have said that from the back, Dan. But I, I like the style of coming all the way up to broadcast it from the microphone. Hey, I don't know about you, but boy, those folks did really well. Most people, most people cannot play this game. In fact, uh, most, most uh, they, they do studies on, on little trick obstacle things like this and, and uh, games like this, and they say that the vast majority of people actually cannot say the color, even though it's as it's, it's plain as day up there because the word is different from the color. When we see red, we want to say red despite whatever color it is. And you know, my, my sermon title today is Appearances Can Be Deceiving appearances can be deceiving in this game we see the name of a color but those names are written in different colors and it's also confusing and it can be deceiving the Apostle Paul was also well aware that outward appearances can be deceiving in fact as we look at Philippians 1 today Paul is going to speak of a state of affairs, a state of affairs that by human eyes, by outward appearance, seem awfully grim. Paul was in prison at the time he's writing Philippians, and he was, and the Philippians were worried that the gospel of Jesus Christ, how could it possibly advance? How could it possibly move forward with its foremost preacher in jail? By outward appearances, it did not seem Possible. But Paul is going to assure these believers that though it might seem like his imprisonment would be a hindrance to the gospel, though it might appear that way, just the opposite is in fact the case. The gospel with Paul in jail has now flourished more than ever before. Turn with me, if you will, to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 12. If you have your Bibles, you'll also be getting a handout from the ushers if they haven't passed that out already. Philippians 1, we're going to start in verse 12, and we're going to go to verse 20. Verse 20. Let's read it together. Paul says this, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard And to all the rest, that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some, indeed, preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, our Lord, we're going to read a portion of Scripture today that by all earthly standards would seem like an awfully grim situation. But yet, Lord, we know that you work mightily when the obstacles are at their highest strength. Father, we know that you delight in our times of weakness, and you delight to make us strong in those times. Help us, Lord, as we study and interpret your word today to see clearly that appearances can be deceiving and that, in fact, you can work mightily through the midst of difficult circumstances. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's get into this study. I'm very excited about this uh, study. This was a this was a tough passage for me this week. Uh, we had a lot going on. As you know, my father-in-law had quintuple bypass surgery, but he's doing well and he appreciates your prayers. And uh, so it was tough, take, you know, attending to him and getting a message ready. But I'll tell you, sometimes, again, in the midst of obstacles, that's when the most fruitful times occur in your life. And for me... This was an obstacle getting this message done today, but it is also one of the more fruitful messages I think I've ever prepared personally. And so I'm excited to share this with you. Take a look at verse 12. Let's get into this. Paul starts off and he says, but I want you to know, but I want you to know, brethren Philippian church, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel. Okay, up in green, we see here that Paul begins by saying, but I want you to know, but I want you to know. Now that's significant because you're going to see the same phraseology, I want you to know that, a little bit later on. So I'm just highlighting it now to just point it out. Notice how he starts this sentence. He's saying, I want you to know that this is happening. That the gospel, he says, is being furthered despite my imprisonment. The things which happened to me have not hindered it. And for Paul, the gospel, as we remembered from last week, the gospel was of utmost importance. He uses the gospel nine times in Philippians. By now, he's already used it three times. and we're going to see a fourth time in this study today. Paul is utterly concerned with the gospel. And you know what he says about the gospel? He says that it's progressing, that it's being furthered. In fact, what you see in furtherance up there is actually a combination of two words in Greek. It means that it's progressing. And then it also means that it's going. And not just the idea of going, but it's going and going and going. Now, kind of like the Energizer Bunny. You remember him? I think I have one of those guys up there. Yeah, he keeps going and going and going. Okay, that's what the gospel is doing. Boy, that guy likes to run there. Oh, in any event, um, that's what's going on here. Paul is saying the gospel is going. It is going. It is going. Perfect tense in Greek. It has an ongoing aspect to it. Despite my imprisonment, despite the fact that I'm on house arrest in Rome and I'm writing to you today, the gospel is moving. It is moving. Verse 13. Paul says this about the progress of the gospel. He says it has become evident so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. The palace guard there—that's an interesting word. It's the Praetorium. It's kind of like the headquarters of the of the battalion or of the army in, in Rome. Paul saying, "My gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ, has reached the highest ranks, the highest levels in the military of the Gentiles of the Romans. It's reached the highest ranks, the Praetorium, the palace guard." And if we look in the book of Acts, if you look at the latter part of Acts, when Paul's getting arrested for the very, uh, for, at the, his initial arrest in, in Jerusalem, and then he goes to Caesarea, and then he takes a trip to Rome, all the way back in Acts, as you read Acts 24, 25, 26, and so on, what you see there is Paul speaking to leading officials, right? He's speaking to Festus, he's speaking to Felix, he's speaking to Agrippa, and later on he's going to speak before Caesar, or at least Caesar's representative. What is Paul saying in verse 13? He's saying the gospel of Jesus Christ, as a result of me going to jail, has furthered all the more. It is rising up to the ranks in society that we could not even fathom for it to be found. Paul is excited. And this reminds us, and this should remind us, of what Jesus said in Matthew 10:18. Remember what he said to his disciples? Jesus said this, You will be brought before governors and kings... For my name's sake. For my sake. As a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Jesus said this very thing would happen. That the disciples, the followers, the apostles of Jesus Christ would be brought before the highest ranks in society. And they would get a chance Just spread the gospel. Some of you are in high-ranking positions. Maybe in a company. Maybe in a government position that you have. Um, I urge you also consider your role in taking the gospel to the highest ranks. Because what happens when the leaders of a nation get saved? What happens when the leaders of a business get saved? Usually, not always, but usually, that starts to trickle down into the rest of society. And if we have a society where its leaders are committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, usually that society will have its citizens do the same. So consider your role in taking the gospel to the highest ranks. Look at verse 14. Verse 14. Oh, and excuse me. One more thing in verse 13, real quickly. He says, my chains are in Christ. In Christ. Now, we might understand this to be a relationship to Christ or an association with Christ. In other words, Paul is saying, my chains are an association with Christ and with the message of Jesus Christ. That's what he means by having his chains in Christ. Now, verse 14. He says this. Now, this is, again, he's continuing on the theme of furthering the gospel, the gospel being uh, moving forward into society. And he says this. And most of the brethren in verse 14, most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. This is the second aspect of what has occurred with the furthering of gospel. The first aspect is it's gone to high ranking officials. The second aspect is, it has emboldened new preachers of the gospel. Paul calls them brethren, which in the New Testament is a key word for believers. I mean, they, these are believers in the Lord who have become confident by Paul's chains and are now much more bold to speak the word without fear. Paul's imprisonment, something that would seemingly dampen their hopes and aspirations of these early Christians, had a most unusual effect on them. Instead of causing them to shrink back in fear of the Jews and the Romans, Paul's imprisonment served to embolden them, to invigorate them, and to invigorate the community of faith. More preachers arose to the occasion while Paul was in prison than ever before. They were confident, and they did not fear what man could do to them. The Word of God was going out to the ends of the earth. Will you rise to the occasion when all hope seems lost? Will you rise to the occasion when all hope seems lost? I was speaking with a good friend and member of this church just the other day. And he we had a good conversation. And he acknowledged to me that our church has hit some rough road in terms of we've lost a lot of folks to moving out of state. And and we've had a little bit of an attendance drop a little bit. And it's been a little bit discouraging. And he acknowledged that. But then he said something that really stuck in my mind. He said, These temporary obstacles, hey, they don't phase me. They don't phase me because I know that we've got something special here at Coast Bible Church. I know that our church is committed to the Lord, committed to God's Word, and that we're doing the things that are faithful to the teachings of the New Testament. And he says, I, for one, am very confident about our future. And he talked about rounding in the horses. And getting families in this church of the same mindset, committed to moving forward. To not letting temporary obstacles, Paul's imprisonment, get us down. To not letting temporary obstacles, a low low Sunday attendance, get us down. Paul is saying the gospel is so much more than that. And we can already be excited and confident that the Lord is doing good things and will continue to do good things. Will you rise to the occasion when all hope seems lost? Let's see how these emboldened preachers rose to the occasion. Take a look at verse 15. Verse 15. We see something interesting here. Paul talks about these preachers, and he's going to say here, here at the very onset that some of them don't have the best motives. This is somewhat of a parenthetic. From verses 15 to verses 18, this is somewhat of a, an aside. Paul's saying, okay... 12, 13, and 14, I've, I've, I've made some key points in those verses. Now I'm going to elaborate further on verse 14 for the next three verses. And Look what he says. He says this. Some, some of these preachers indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife. And some also from good will. Unfortunately, we can be sure that not all these preachers had the purest of motives. While Paul was in prison, some of them... Or perhaps a bit envious. And this is these are relational terms, envy and strife. They express mo- most likely their sentiment toward Paul. Their envy of Paul. Their desire to be contentious with Paul. Perhaps because Paul is a really good preacher. And when you've got somebody who's really popular, usually others might become envious or become contentious toward them. And that's probably what's going on here. These other preachers are being emboldened. To preach, but yet they're doing it and they retain some envy, retain some strife for Paul. We might ask the question, were these preachers actually believers in Christ? And I say unequivocally, yes. How do I know that? Look at verse 14, brethren. Okay, it's in yellow. These were brothers, Paul says. And nor does Paul condemn them. So if Paul were to maybe want to discredit their association with Christ or their, their affiliation as a believer in Jesus Christ, he would have said something about it, but he didn't. He simply said that they had poor motivations. So these were believers who were preaching, but had a little bit of envy and strife in their sentiment. Others preached from goodwill. This means good pleasure. They, and Again, this has to do with their attention toward Paul. They were having, they were expressing goodwill toward Paul. They had good intentions toward Paul. They appreciated Paul's ministry and wanted to carry on the work that he was doing. Look at verse 16. The former, now, before I actually say verse 16 and 17, if you'll notice in your Bibles, if you do not have the New King James, you're going to notice something very odd about these, these two verses. If you don't have the New King James in front of you, you're going to notice that what? These verses are flipped. Yeah. They're flipped. You're going to see verse 17 coming first and verse 16 coming second. You say, well, why is that? Well, uh, quite simply, there are a number of Greek manuscripts around the world in museums today that are copies of the Greek New Testament. And there's a good portion of copies that say verse 16 comes first and verse 17 comes next. And then there are another good portion of manuscripts that say, no, verse 17 comes first and verse 16 comes next. And I say, hey. You know what? I'm not too worried about it because they say the same thing. So uh, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna discredit the word of God just because there's two verses out of order that say exactly the same thing. Um, but notice that in your Bibles, just to keep keep yourself aware of that. We're going to be looking at verse 16 according to the New King James manuscripts. It says this: the former, meaning the ones that preach from envy and strife. Okay, the former preachers preach Christ from selfish ambition, selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to Paul's chains. But the latter, those preaching from goodwill, they preach out of love, knowing that I, Paul, am appointed for the defense of the gospel. Okay, a few key words here. Selfish ambition. Here's the first one. This idea of selfish ambition. You ready for this? This is kind of funny. I found this funny. This has the idea of those political canvassers you find out and you f- you see in front of Target. You guys ever met some of those folks? Remember, they, they have their sign-up sheet and they want you to sign a petition for something. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? All right, good, good. You guys are like, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> work with me here. Work with me. It this has this idea of selfish ambition has to do with political canvassers. Ah, oh, yeah, there we go. These are the folks that hound us, hound us, hound us to sign these petitions about this policy and that policy. And, oh, we want to raise this funds and these funds over here. And I don't know about you, but I I just can't stand, can't stand being hounded by those folks. Why? They only have one goal in mind to get you to sign on the dotted line. Right. That's their only goal. That's what this Greek word for selfish ambition carries. It's the idea of them having one goal in mind, and that is their own pride, their own conceit, their own selfish ambition. These preachers, Paul says, want to make themselves look good. They have only one purpose in mind. Look at the word appointed. Appointed. Paul says that but the latter, not from selfish ambition, these latter ones, these latter preachers speak out of love, knowing that I am appointed. This word appointed here carries the idea of it's the passive. He means to be appointed. In other words, to be appointed by God, Paul's been appointed or destined to defend the gospel. So they have a correct understanding of Paul, and this idea of defense should carry us back to verse seven. Look in your look at your Bible, Philippians one seven. Paul says, "I am here in prison to defend the gospel, to defend the gospel," and he says it again here in verse seventeen. Moving on, Now, we're moving rather quickly through this, but we're going to come to a standstill at about verse nineteen. So. So bear with me as we move rather quickly to 18. He says, What then? What then? This means, What does it matter? Or, What's the difference? So what? What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice. What then? Only in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached, and in this I rejoice. Pretense has the idea of a ploy or a scam, and what is Paul saying here? He says very clearly, very clearly. He says, "So long as Christ is preached, I will rejoice. So long as Christ is preached, I will rejoice. As long as the message is being communicated, that's all that matters. Certainly, Paul is not. He is not condoning." the poor motivation of these other preachers. Let that be very clear. Paul is not dismissing their emotions of envy and strife and saying, oh, well, that's fine. That's okay. That's not what Paul's doing. Instead, Paul is recognizing a higher purpose. A higher purpose. He recognizes that it is of more importance that Christ is preached than for those preachers to have the purest motivations. Let me say that again. Paul recognizes that it is more important that Christ is preached than for those preachers to have the right motivations. That's a significant statement. And I would would venture to guess that not all of us approaching this text might have believed that statement. But Paul makes it very clear. As long as Christ is preached, that takes preeminence. That is the higher purpose. And I want to sum this up with a quote. Uh, actually, no. Let me um, let me sum this up with a quote from Gerald Hawthorne. He says this. This is really really nailing it down. He says this. Paul's joy was in knowing that the Christian gospel was being preached. The how of preaching is not the object of Paul's joy. The fact of the preaching is. The power of the gospel therefore does not depend on the character of the preacher. Whew. Now again, this doesn't let the preacher off the hook. This doesn't let the teacher of God's word off the hook, because James is later on is going to say, hey, if you're going to teach the word of God, you better watch out because you're going to be judged by everything you say and everything you do. But for now, Paul says the message takes preeminence. Doesn't matter what the preacher's doing out of poor motivations. As long as the gospel being preached. Paul's going to take joy in that. All right, moving on. Now we come, oof. Now we come to the tough stuff. Ready for this? Verse eighteen. Actually, oh, last thing. Sorry, last thing before we come to the tough stuff. Notice in yellow. Notice the gospel here. Do you see it? Do you see it so clearly? Paul says the gospel in Christ, the word, preach Christ, preach Christ, gospel. Christ is preached again and again and again in this whole section. What is the focus? It's the gospel. It's the gospel. People say that the main theme in Philippians is joy. I disagree. Yes, joy is a theme in Philippians. The main theme in Philippians is the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is the theme of Philippians. That that message would go and keep going. And Paul takes joy in that. And that's a supplemental theme. But this, ladies and gentlemen, is the message of Philippians. The movement of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 18. Here we go. I'm going to read through this once, and then we're going to clarify. And you're going to say, well, why in the world are you starting with the end of verse 18? I'll clarify that in just a second. Paul says this, Yes, and will rejoice, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always... So now also, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Okay, grammar lesson. I know we don't like grammar. I can't stand grammar. I failed English grammar in grade school. It was awful. But I'll tell you, you need to have grammar. And in this case, the grammar of this section of Scripture is so critical for you and I to understand this passage. And for us to take it and apply it. To our lives today. So the grammar is critical, and I want you to look at the next uh, next notations here. I have um, changed the coloring so that hopefully you can see that. I know the green; it might be a little hard to see. In yellow is one complete thought, and in green is one complete thought. And we're going to substantiate this in just a second. But notice in yellow, from "Yes, and will rejoice" to the "According to my earnest expectation and hope," that is one complete thought for Paul, according to the Greek grammar. Now our translations make my opinion a mistake in, in 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 having verse 20 not excuse me starting verse 20 with that according to my earnest expectation and hope because that makes us want to apply that to the rest of verse 20 but in fact it's not the case so notice those two things now look at the next notation uh, I've added some things for clarification in white okay in white. And this is only for clarification. I don't, I don't mean to add to the Word of God, but I want to help us understand the Word of God. So look at verse 18. Instead of yes and will rejoice, this is what we would more, more literally translate it as. Paul says, and also I will be rejoicing. In the passive, he's saying I will be rejoicing about something else. Now recall in your Bibles, we just looked at the end of verse 18 where he says that he rejoices in what? That Christ is preached. He says, if Christ is preached, I will rejoice. Okay, complete thought. Now, he says, and also, there's something else I'm going to rejoice about. Second thought. And also, I will be rejoicing about something else. And this is what he says. He says, for I know that, blank. He says, for I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. Then notice again at the Start of verse twenty. He says, and I know that. Okay? That's the that's the that's the breakdown of the passage here. He's saying, I will rejoice again, because I know that this will turn out for my deliverance, and I know that I will not be ashamed. Alright? Now this is difficult. I understand. What I would recommend is taking a slash and slashing right between in your Bibles where the complete thoughts are so that you can follow along as we substantiate why and prove why this is the case, why this is the way the passage should be read. All right, let's take a look at uh, verse 19, Into verse 18, start of verse 19. Notice that he begins with, for I know that. And then he's going to say that again at the middle of verse 20. The first thing Paul knows is this, and this is the first thing he takes joy in. He takes joy in the fact that, number one, he knows this will turn out for his deliverance. And secondly, he knows that he will not experience shame in anything. Let's start with the first one. We're on slide 16, if you need that, Scott. The first one, Paul knows that this will turn out for his deliverance. Now, I want to explain clearly how he supports this. Paul says... Uh, next, next notation. He says, point one, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. Verse 19a. And this is, and he's going to rejoice in this. But he supports this statement. Look what he supports it by. First, a he supports it by the prayers of the Philippians. He's saying I will be delivered through the prayers of the Philippians. B. He says I will be delivered through the supply of the Holy Spirit of, of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, which I would say very clearly, is Paul speaking of the Holy Spirit. Paul uses the Spirit of Christ occasionally, not very often, but occasionally he uses the Spirit of Christ as a reference to the Holy Spirit of God. And in this case, he's saying the supply of the Holy Spirit will help in his deliverance. Thirdly, Paul says that this is a deliverance that Paul expects and hopes for. He, ex- excuse me, he expected and hoped for. He anticipated this deliverance to occur. He anticipated that it would occur. Now you're asking the million dollar question, right? What is this deliverance? What is this deliverance? What do you mean, Paul? How is the prayer of the Philippians, how is the supply of the Holy Spirit of God, how is this something you anticipated and expected? What are you talking about, this idea of deliverance? Well... Let's take a look. There are four options here. And by the way, that word deliverance is the word soterion in Greek. It's literally salvation. Okay, But you and I have come to understand that salvation in the New Testament doesn't always mean eternal salvation, although it can mean that. There are actually four options up on the screen. What kind of deliverance is Paul talking about? Well, here they are. The first option is eternal salvation. He could be speaking of eternal salvation. Secondly, he could be speaking of a kind of vindication, a vindication, at the Roman Bema seat. Now, the Bema seat is the judgment seat. That's just a Greek word for judgment seat. And uh, we under, we know the, of Jesus's Bema seat, Bema seat rather, the next one, vindication at Jesus' Bema seat, that could also be an option that Paul's speaking of. And finally, fourth, he could be speaking of simply deliverance from prison. I want to walk you through these four, particularly paying attention to three and four, and we're going to come to a decision. We're going to deduct through this. And I know this is a little bit toilsome, but hang in there, because I think you're going to see some real fruit from this study and understanding what Paul is trying to tell you and I. Let's look at the first option. Do do we think that this could be eternal salvation? Well, I'm going to say right from the get-go, no. And I'm going to only give one reason. I'm only going to give one reason. All you've got to do is look at verse 19. Paul says that through your prayers and through the supply of the Holy Spirit, I will be eternally saved. That doesn't seem to make much sense to me. Paul would not be speaking of the prayers of the Philippians as assisting his eternal salvation or as assisting his deliverance. What is more is that our salvation, our eternal salvation in Christ is not contingent, is not dependent upon our perseverance through trials. The Bible and Paul especially makes it clear the salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. Right? Paul is the foremost advocate of that in all of the New Testament. He says it again and again. Justification is by faith. And if we were to read Philippians 1:19 as eternal salvation, then we would be saying that justification is by really striving through that prison sentence. And that's not what Paul's saying here. It could not be eternal salvation. I X that out rather quickly. I don't mean to do it imprudently, but I believe that there's just no good reason for us to understand this is Paul's eternal salvation. What about vindication at the Roman judgment seat? Well, the reason why I don't like this option either is because of this. There's two two reasons. First is that Paul desires to vindicate the gospel. If you read verse 7 and you read verse 12... And you read all of the passages we've been looking at leading up to this. Paul is not defending himself. I think we've made that very clear. Paul is defending the gospel. And for him to desire vindication before Rome would seem to be antithetical. That would seem to be the opposite of his entire goal, which is to defend the gospel. If Paul had said that this will turn out for the gospel's deliverance, then yes, I would say it's option two. But he said, no, 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 no. This will turn out for my deliverance. Deliverance For my deliverance. Because he used my there, I don't think that Paul could be speaking of his own vindication. Secondly, notice that Paul does not retaliate. He does not retaliate against fellow believing preachers who displayed emotions of envy and strife back in verses 15 to 17. Now, I say this because think about it. If you were desiring your innocence, imagine that you were trying to prove yourself innocent. And you were getting pounded by people who were bringing false charges against you, who were acting mean toward you. What would you do if you were to be speaking of those people? You would immediately go on the offensive and say, No, they're wrong, and here's why they're wrong. But what does Paul do about the preachers in verses 15 to 17? He says, Hey, you know what? They have poor motivations, but all I care about is the gospel. Paul is not, not concerned about his own personal vindication. He's not concerned about his own personal vindication. So we X out option two. Option three, here's where you're going to see some extra things on the screen. I like option three to an extent. I think there's some pros and there's some cons to this. In fact, a recent scholar uh, came out in favor of this option, uh, who I respect. But I think that there's, it's possible, but not altogether a, a, a cemented in stone for us to take option three, but let's look at it. First, I want to look at the pros. Paul says this about option three, whether or not this deliverance could be vindication before Jesus at the Bama Seat Judgment. Paul says, look, notice this, number one for, for a pro, in favor of this option. When, Paul, when Paul's expectation of deliverance is coupled with his knowledge that he will not be ashamed. In the next verse, remember the word "ashamed." Paul may be alluding to his own personal vindication at the bema seat before Jesus. He may be. John in 1 John 2:28, John speaks of saying, "Little children, you know, pay attention to what you're doing so that you will not be ashamed at Jesus' is coming." Okay, this could be what Paul has in mind here. He's saying, "I'll be delivered and I won't be ashamed. I'll be vindicated before Jesus." That's a possibility. That's a possibility. Second good reason to believe option three is this. There's good support. We're going to see this passage later in our series. There's good support that the word Paul uses for deliverance, that same word is used in Philippians 2.12, and it does concern the Bema Seat judgment. He says, work out your salvation or your deliverance with fear and trembling. And I would say that in that case, it is very clear to me that Paul is speaking of the Bema Seat or the future judgment of Christ. But that doesn't necessarily mean he's using it the same way in verse 19. Okay? Something to think about. Now, here are the reasons against this option. Why is it not probable that Paul is speaking of a future Bama Seat vindication before Jesus? The first problem with it is this. It is not customary. It is not customary for Paul to use the word shame in relation to the Bema. Instead, Paul prefers two words, approved and disapproved. In fact, I would submit to you that in all of the New Testament, Paul does not use the word shame to refer to the judgment seat of Christ. John does, but Paul doesn't. Paul says you're either approved before Jesus or you're disapproved. He doesn't use the word shame. And this is... If, if, in fact, this is about the Bema Seat in verse 19, this would be the only instance in which he does use the word shame. That would seem unlikely to me. Secondly, Paul never before, Paul never before or after Philippians 1:19 requests prayer or cites prayer, acknowledges prayer for his future vindication before Jesus. Moreover, it seems unusual that the prayer of the Philippians would assist Paul in his future vindication. Does that make sense? In other words, how, how would it be that the prayers of the Philippian church will help Paul go before Jesus in the afterlife and be vindicated? It seems to me that there's a little bit of discrepancy there, uh, that we can't quite match up how that prayer would affect his vindication before Jesus. It's possible, it's conceivable, but it seems unlikely. And I hope that makes sense. Again, this, this, is, very, this is a very difficult part. In this sermon, it's probably the most difficult section of Scripture that I have personally dealt with before you in in my preaching. But it seems unlikely that Paul would be speaking of the bain here based on these two reasons. So again, to look at our four options, I say option three is possible. I kind of leave the X off to the side. Um, It's a maybe, but maybe not. Um, Now, I like option four a whole lot. And let's look at option four. Why is it? That in verse 19, Paul is talking about being delivered from prison. Why is it that it could be deliverance from prison? Here's two very, very good reasons. Actually, three good reasons. The first is this. Paul says in verse 19, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. Look what he says five verses later. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and the joy of faith. That your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. Ladies and gentlemen, what is he saying six verses later? I'm coming home. I am coming home. I will not endure prison any longer. I am confident that I am coming home to you. Get ready. I am coming out of prison. He says it in verse 19. He repeats it in verse 25. Repeats the themes, which is not uncommon for Paul. I'm coming home. Look at the second reason why it's deliverance from prison. When Paul asks, excuse me, through, through your prayer, notice he says, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer. Well, when Paul asks for prayer, I'll tell you, he very, likely, he very often asks for prayer for help for deliverance from either prison or evil men or in some kind of, of earthly deliverance from this obstacle. And look what he says in Philemon 22. Look what he says, and this is written at the same period of time he's writing Philippians. The same imprisonment, he's writing another letter, and this is what he says. At the same time also, prepare for me a lodging or a room, for I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Same phraseology. He's using the same words. He's repeating himself to, to in this letter uh, to Philemon. He's repeating himself, saying, I know that through your prayers, your prayers, the help of your prayers, I will get out and I will come to you. And finally, what cements option four for for uh, for me, in my opinion, is Romans 15. And this isn't speaking of Roman. This isn't speaking of imprisonment, but it is using similar language to refer to earthly deliverance. Look what he says in Romans 15 He says, but I know that I know that I know that he keeps saying this. I know that when I come to you, I shall come in the fullness of the blessing of the gospel of Christ. Now I beg you, brethren, through the Lord Jesus Christ and through the love of the Spirit, that you strive together with me in what? Prayers. In prayers to God for me. That uh, that what? I may be delivered. That I may be delivered. Different word for delivered, but the same synonymous concept here. From those in Judea who do not believe... And that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, that I may come to you with joy. Hey, there's a Philippian term there. By the will of God, and may be refreshed together with you. Whew. Okay, boy, that was. I know that. I, I I hope I didn't lose you, because I'll tell you, it's really fruitful to go through options one, two, three, and four, and figure out what is he saying here. What is he saying? In my humble opinion we can be very confident that Paul is speaking of deliverance from prison. We can be somewhat confident that he could be speaking of future vindication before Jesus. I don't think it's likely. But I know that it is very likely that he is saying, I am getting out of prison. I am coming home. I am coming home. Okay. And uh, lastly, for you who like to go on rabbit trails, anybody like to go on rabbit trails like me? Go ahead and turn later on, not now because you will look at this and you won't listen to anything I have to say for the rest of the sermon. go ahead and turn to Job 16:13. You know why? Because in Job 16:13, in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the words "For I know I will be this will turn out for my deliverance," that exact phrase "for I know this will turn out for my deliverance is exactly quoted in Job 16:13. Excuse me, 13, 16. Thank you, thank you. Job 13, 16. I wrote that down wrong. Thank you, Pat. That is really significant because what is Job hoping to get? Earthly deliverance. Earthly deliverance. All right. Moving on. We're almost done. Here we go. We're rounding the corner. Now we get to verse 20. We get to verse 20 and Paul's going to say the second thing that he has joy about. Now let me recap. The first thing that he has joy about is that he's going to be delivered from prison, through our prayers, through the supply of the Holy Spirit, that he expects this to happen and he is hoping for this to happen. And secondly, he knows that, that, boom, in nothing I shall be ashamed. In nothing I shall be ashamed. But with all boldness, as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. When we look back at this, we see here that Paul is speaking of the word ashamed, and he's saying, I won't be ashamed. And let me let me say what I believe he's he's meaning here. Though the Jews, though the Jews who arrested Paul were sure that his ongoing Jewish and Roman imprisonment would bring shame to the gospel, though the message of Jesus the message of salvation for a Jew and a Greek would be considered by many Jews and Greeks alike to be nothing more than a fanciful religious idea. How, how is it possible that two people groups so diametrically opposed to each other could be united in Christ? Though the Christian movement was experiencing severe persecutions by now, persecutions that were increasing in severity, And we're increasing in number. Through all of this, Paul wants to let the Philippians know loud and clear that he is not going to be ashamed. I will not be ashamed by testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Instead of shame, Paul says, I will continue with boldness. I will continue with boldness. So now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. This should take us back to verse 18. Remember that when he says, when the, when, uh, whether in pretense or in truth, as long as Christ is preached. Whether by life or by death, so long as Christ is preached. He's a good repeater. Paul says... Where the preaching of the gospel, much like verse 18, where the preaching of the gospel takes precedence over the character of the preacher, here we see the magnification of Jesus Christ takes precedence over Paul's own life or death. Friends, preaching and living according to the message of Jesus Christ takes precedence over all things. And Paul was utterly convinced of this. Alright, moving to application. Okay, so what? We've, we've Wrangled through this, we've we've tried to understand what Paul is saying. It's been a difficult portion of Scripture, I think, perhaps for all of us. But can we pull something out of this that's helpful? And I would say absolutely. There are three very helpful things I want you to consider. The first is this. I want you to commit to memory the interpretation of Philippians 1.19. I believe firmly that it is released from prison. And I think there's very good evidence for that. And I want you to commit that to memory because I'll tell you again... When you commit to memory difficult passages of Scripture, when someone else comments on it, you can be there to guide them and to help them in understanding what the Word of God is saying. I had said last week, commit to memory the interpretation of verses 5 and 6. Now I'd like to see you commit to memory the interpretation of verse 19. Secondly, this is key. The progress, the progress and success of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not impeded. By seemingly overwhelming obstacles. That's true for Coast Bible Church, I'll tell you right now. That is true for us today. Any obstacles that you and I may be facing, whether they be personally or corporately as a body here today, that does not affect the gospel of Jesus Christ. Amen? It does not affect the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't care how small we are or how big we are, or whatever the case may be. It will not affect the way this church moves forward with the gospel of Jesus Christ because we will be faithful in proclaiming it as Paul was faithful even in prison. And thirdly, this is, I love this part because I want this to be front and center in our lives. Does the message of Jesus take preeminence in your life? Does the gospel take preeminence? Because Paul's saying it should. And I would say that the value you place in the gospel is largely reflected in how often you speak of it with others. If it takes preeminence, that means you're going to talk about it, much like my wife takes value and priority in my life, and I like to talk about her. I didn't talk about her today, but I'm talking about her now. I love my wife, and and so what do I do? I talk about my wife, and I brag about my wife, and I talk about our baby, and blah, 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 and I bore you to tears. But you know what? If the gospel, if it really is a priority to you, you will talk about it. You will talk about it. And I will talk about it. And we will talk about it. Consider that as you go about your day-to-day lives. Let's pray.